The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 15, Of Repentance Unto Life, Paragraphs 1 and 2. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. Paragraph 2. By it, a sinner, out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins, as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavouring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments." I was once stuck in traffic and found myself sitting outside a church. As I looked at their building and all the signs they had on their windows, I was drawn to the word repentance, which was written in their window in large letters. And underneath the word repentance was a smaller statement that said, the word you never hear anymore. I'm not sure if this particular church had surveyed all the other local churches in their area to ask them if they use the word repentance, and certainly I can't speak for the other churches here in my own town of Balnahinch, but I would hope and pray that repentance was mentioned. I'd be very surprised if repentance had dropped from the vocabulary of the local church. It is a vital doctrine, and in chapter 15 of the Westminster Confession, we see why. The divines begin by calling repentance an evangelical grace, and Chad Van Dixhorn helps us to understand what they mean. Van Dixhorn states, Repentance is an evangelical grace because repentance involves believing something about ourselves and something about Christ. Repentance is an evangelical grace because repentance involves believing something about ourselves and something about Christ. And it is important to note that this knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of Christ does not come from within. Repentance is a divine grace. It is worked in us by the Holy Spirit. It is not an act of man alone. We do not wake up one day and decide that we are incredibly sorry for our sin and then run to Jesus. The Holy Spirit works in us and repentance is a fruit of his work. So repentance knows who we are and also what Christ did. And the Westminster Divines point us to various passages in the scriptures 
to support this assertion. Firstly, they take us to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, where the Lord speaks, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Here in Zechariah 12, we see repentance. It is a grace of God given to us. It is worked in us by the Holy Spirit. And repentance, when it looks upon Christ, whom we have pierced by our sins, we are filled with mourning and sadness. We weep over him and we realize the scale and depravity of our sin and what Christ had to do for our sins to be paid for. Here is true biblical repentance unto life. And therefore, this vital doctrine is to be preached by every single minister of the gospel, in addition to saving faith in Christ. And my friends, today, if your minister doesn't preach repentance, if you never hear about repentance from him, then he is failing in his duty and responsibility. We proclaim the gospel. We tell everyone who hears that Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification. And then we ask individuals to respond to the gospel, to believe it. And as part of that gospel call, we must impress upon anyone within earshot the need to repent of their sins and to put their faith in Christ. Here is what the divines urge upon all ministers of the gospel, all preachers of this precious truth, that we are to respond to the gospel of Jesus by repentance and faith. In Luke 24 and verse 47, Jesus urges his disciples that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And indeed in Mark 1 and verse 15, John the Baptist comes preaching. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And in Acts 20 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul said that he had testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so repentance is this evangelical grace worked in us by the Holy Spirit who leads us to consider the depravity of our sin and the scale of the sacrifice of Jesus. Repentance knows who we are and repentance knows what Christ did and the gospel minister worth his salt will always preach the doctrine of repentance and faith in Jesus. It should never fall from the vocabulary of the local church. But what does repentance unto life look like? I think it's important to note that it is more than just sorry. I am a husband and a father, and often I find myself urging my children to say a proper sorry. Not a sorry with fingers crossed hidden behind our back, but a sorry that is truly sorry. Repentance is not just, I'm sorry God, and then moving on with our life. By it, say the divines in paragraph two, a sinner sees and senses the danger of their sin. The sinner, when they come to Jesus repenting of their sins, knows exactly what they are repenting of. They understand that sin is not a trivial issue, that it is not just a little white lie. It is not just something that can be easily done away with. Sin 
will bring death to all of those who refuse to repent. In Ezekiel 18 and verse 30, the Lord says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Repentance understands the danger of sin. Repentance knows that sin will bring ruin to the one who refuses to bend the knee to Jesus. So repentance sees and senses the danger of sin, but also the filthiness and odiousness of sin before a holy God. The Lord says in Ezekiel 36 and verse 31, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Sin is an affront and an offence to our righteous and holy God. Sin is not a trivial matter. Sin is not an issue that a politician can solve. Sin has divided us from God. We have fallen before him. Sin and death have entered into this world. And every issue that we struggle with today finds its root in that first rebellion all those years ago. I've been asked recently about why God doesn't just step in and do something about coronavirus. Because after all, if he was a good and righteous and holy God, he could do something. He could click his fingers. He could just wipe it away and sort it all out. If only this God would fix the problems that he seems happy to allow. But such an attitude refuses to see and refuses to believe and understand that sin finds its root in our rebellion. Sin is not an invention of God. Sin did not enter into this world because of something that God did. Sin finds its root in the garden when the first Adam deliberately disobeyed God's command. This sin has caused every filthy and odious thing that troubles this world. Today, if we see the difficulties that the world is going through, today if we marvel at the state and condition of humanity, It is not God's fault, but it is ours. Every death, every illness, every difficulty, every problem, all finds its source in our sin. It is filthy, it is odious, and repentance understands fully just how filthy and odious our sin actually is. See, God isn't just a little bit unhappy about our sin. It's not like when we once upon a time were chastised by our father who in one hand was telling us that we had been very, very naughty but on the other hand we noticed a twinkle in his eye and a slight smirk as he was dealing with a child whom he loved. Sin before Almighty God is an absolute abomination. Repentance, say the Westminster Divines, understands that sin is contrary to the holy nature of and righteous law of God. And so in Psalm 51 and verse 4, David understands when he says, Against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David gets it, that his sin with Bathsheba was an affront to his God. It was an offence to the Lord. It was evil in his sight. And in Isaiah 6, the prophet sees the throne of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, 
and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Both David and Isaiah understood that our God is a holy God, and sin is absolutely contrary to who he is. Repentance gets this, repentance understands this, and so repentance is not just sorry with a smirk, but repentance understands the filthiness and odiousness of sin before the holy nature and righteous law of Almighty God. Indeed, repentance, say the Westminster Divines, grieves for and hates our sin. Again, the truly repentant sinner doesn't smirk and wink at their sins. The repentant sinner grieves for it. He or she understands what it is and who it is against, and therefore they mourn their sin. They despise it. They hate it. It is as we read in Isaiah 30 and 22, the Lord says, Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things, and you will say to them, Be gone. Repentance gets it. Repentance grieves our sin, hates our sin, and longs for it to be gone. And yet, as we long for our sin to go, repentance also knows where we must go. The Westminster Divines tell us that repentance understands that we must turn from our sins and instead turn to God. But what if God will not forgive us, we might ask? What if repentance has led us up a blind alley? What if we bend the knee humbly before this great and mighty God, but he doesn't say that we are forgiven? Well, true repentance is never a blind alley. The Westminster Divines put it this way, that repentance rests upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent. Again, repentance is not a blind alley. Repentance knows that Christ is merciful and will receive all of those who call upon him in repentance and faith. We see in Jeremiah 31 the repentance of the people of Ephraim and also the Lord's response to it. The Lord says in verse 18, I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. What will the Lord's response be to Ephraim's repentance? Verse 20 shows us. The Lord says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. The sinner repents, and the Lord is merciful in Christ to that sinner. The Lord urges us in Joel 2, verses 12 to 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. 
Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The Lord's response to the penitent sinner is grace and mercy. Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 11 as godly grief. We mourn over our sin, we repent of our sin, and repentance knows that as we turn to Christ, he will meet us with his forgiveness. Repentance longs for our sin to go, and repentance urges us to go to the throne of grace. And just as we arrive at that throne and find forgiveness there, won and bought for us by the precious blood of Christ, repentance also takes a new direction. Paragraph 2 ends with the divine stating that repentance unto life leads the penitent sinner to purposing and endeavouring to walk with God in all the ways of his commandments. Or in other words, repentance as it comes to Jesus leaves the throne of grace seeking a closer walk with God. Repentance causes us to change direction. We see this played out in Psalm 119. In verse 6, the psalmist writes, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. In verse 59, he states, When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. There's a directional change. Repentance leads us to another path. And in verse 106, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Indeed, we see examples of this throughout the scriptures. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, we are introduced to a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Verse 6 tells us that they were both righteous before the Lord and they were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Here is this married couple who loved the Lord and followed him in all his ways. And King Josiah is described in 2 Kings 23 and 25, Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Repentance runs to Jesus, and repentance sends us on our way, purposing and endeavouring to walk with Christ in all the ways of his commandments. I think it's useful here to consider the use of the law of God in our lives. Of course, by this stage it should go without saying that we cannot be saved by keeping the law. But the law does have a purpose in the believer's life. Firstly, the law is to be a mirror. Firstly, the law is to be a mirror. On one hand, it shows us how perfect and holy and righteous our God is. And also, it shows us our sinfulness. And as we realise that sinfulness, so we run to Jesus. The law of God also restrains evil. And so the law allows for some justice to be done on this earth. Today we live in Northern Ireland where it is illegal to murder your neighbour or to steal his property. We are thankful for this. This gives us freedom and protection here in this society. So God's law is a mirror showing us his holiness and showing us our sin and causing us to run to Jesus. And God's law restrains evil in society today. And finally, the third purpose of God's law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And so we take him at his word. We will have no other gods before the Lord. 
We will not make any false images of God. We will not take his name in vain. We will keep the Sabbath day and strive to keep it holy. We will honour our parents. We will not murder. We will not commit adultery, steal, bear false witness against our neighbour, or covet his house, his wife, or any of his possessions. The law of God is still relevant in the believer's life. The law shows us what pleases our Lord, and so as we repent before the Lord, so too we go a different direction. We fix our eyes on his commandments, we turn our feet to his testimonies, and we strive to keep his righteous rules. I trust today that we have seen why it is a shameful thing if repentance has dropped from the vocabulary of the church. It is an utterly essential biblical doctrine. It is to be preached. It is to be shared. Repentance and faith in Christ is to be our cry. And repentance shows us the danger of our sin, the filth and dirt of our sin. It causes us to grieve for and to hate our sin. And repentance causes us to run to Jesus and then to strive to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. Repentance unto life is an essential doctrine. And today we rejoice in the fact that all who the Father have given unto the Son will come to the Son, and the Son will by no means cast them out. In Christ we have a good and merciful Saviour. And so as believers may we be much in repentance in these days. And today my friends, if you sit listening to this podcast in self-isolation under fear and threat of the coronavirus, and you wonder what the answer is to it all, then I can assure you today that the answer is Christ. If you do not know him, then may you call upon him. If you have not received him as your saviour, then may you do so without delay. Christ Jesus died for our sins at Calvary's cross, was dead and buried, but rose again on the third day. We call this good news, the gospel. And today I call upon you to repent and to believe the gospel. As always, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. What do we mean when we say that repentance is an evangelical grace? Question 2. True or false? Repentance comes from within us, without the work of God. Support your answer biblically. Question 3. According to paragraph 2, what does repentance actually look like? Question 4. Where does repentance send us to and where do we go from there? And question 5. What are the three uses of God's law today? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn and until next time, this we confess. Thank you.